Hello everyone and welcome to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week's podcast is brought to you by Yamaha Motorcycles. Filling the gap between the entry-level R3 and the flagship Superbike R1, Yamaha's YZF R7 is a brilliant super sport machine that provides real performance, perfectly balanced with rider comfort. Check it out at yamahamotorsport.com or of course you can see it for yourself at your local Yamaha dealer. This podcast is also brought to you by the new state-of-the-art Schuberth C5. The modular C5 is a flip-up design that blends safety with amazing aerodynamic and aeroacoustic performance within its lightweight and compact design. Visit Schuberth.com for more information. This week, Senior Editor Nick DeSena gives us his impression of the outrageously cool-looking new Indian Scout Rogue. The Rogue features a larger front wheel, among several other changes, and the bob looks and the excellent 100-horsepower motor make the Scout Rogue an interesting and very real competitor to the offerings from Milwaukee. In the second segment, Neil Bailey brings us the third and final part from Brian Slark, the man who helped bring Norton Motorcycles to America. Having spent 27 years and counting at the Barber Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, Brian talks us through the final part of his career. That, of course, includes how the museum got started and where it's going. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoyed this episode. The YZF-R7 bridges the gap between the entry-level YZF-R3 and the prestigious YZF-R1, offering a mid-level option for both new riders looking to grow into a more powerful motorcycle, as well as experienced riders seeking a fully fared motorcycle. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. With an advanced CP2 engine inside an ultra-thin and lightweight chassis, the YZF-R7 delivers tons of linear torque providing you with exhilarating track day sessions or plenty of power for ripping your favorite canyon curves. Take a closer look at yamahamotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. Yes, this is a new iteration to the Indian Scout family for 2022. You know, the Scout, the Scout line was launched a number of years ago in 2015, and it, it definitely, you know, added a different twist and different flavor to the American V-Twin tradition. It didn't have a, you know, your stereotypical kind of low down, um, low down and mid-range torque engine that sort of signed off in the top end. It, it actually revs up, it spins up aggressively when you want it to. And, and it has some, some decent top end snuff. And then it also had a chassis that handled quite well. And this was just talking about the standard Scout. The Rogue uh, really taps into the more recent trends that we've seen coming out of the West Coast and just you know general American V-Twin uh, trends in the cruiser world by adopting that sort of club look. So you'll see that little minimalist fly screen, um, uh, different wheel sizes on the Rogue as well. So it has a 19 inch front wheel uh, instead of that 
chunky fat tire that came on the original Scout and the Scout Bobber. Um, and then it also has some uh, high-rise bars that, that Indian refers to as the mini apes. So you have raise-up bars, different wheel, little club screen. Those are pretty much the primary changes for the Indian Scout Rogue if we're talking about uh, you know, comparing it to the, the standard Scout model. But we spent an afternoon, or not an afternoon, a full day running around some, some of our local roads in California on this thing. And uh, yeah, we had, we had some fun on it. And you know, despite the fact that the Scout platform was released in 15, riding this in 2022 with a handful of changes, it just struck me how good this, this, is, this cruiser is. It, it's genuinely fun to ride. Yeah, it, it is. And they've, they've worked really well on the looks. I mean, I love the sort of the bobbed fenders on it, you know, the little shorty front fender and that really abbreviated back end gives it a really stubby look. It looks great. So when I first rode the Scout, again, the first iteration that you just referenced, I was really impressed with the motor on it. Have they, have they done anything to the motor or is it the, the, the same as, as before? There have been a few changes, and that's that's something that I did talk about with engineers that were on site at the time. But by and large, no, it's it's more or less the same engine that you rode in 15. So, you know, by the numbers, it's 100 horsepower and an extremely tractable 72 foot-pounds of torque. So numbers that, if we're comparing to, you know, typical American V-twin stuff, more than ample. The difference is it just has a lot more headroom. I mean, it revs out to somewhere around... 8300 rpm wow and you know with tuning you could get a little bit more out of it and when i say tuning i just mean fuel map tuning not actually changing hard parts so until the nightster came out the 2022 harley davidson nightster scout rogue was one of the highest revving american v-twin engines on the market um and it had the personality to match as well it it really pulled up to that red line instead of signing off, you know, like, like a lot of uh, its contemporaries would, you know, at the time when this was released, the Sportster uh, 883 and 1200 models were its direct competitors and the personalities between those motors couldn't be, couldn't be like more different. You know, on the Harley side, you had the typical, uh, American V twin engine that just had all of its torque and power down low. And then as you rev it out, it tends to peter out. Whereas this thing just pulls strong, super smooth, but it has enough to let you know that it's alive. And, you know, it's something that uh, I really enjoyed. And, and, you know, the gearbox as well, it, it's more of a modern take. It's not that very old school agricultural gearbox either. You know, it's very, very, um, we'll say sporty gearbox, not quite up to snuff with your average sport machine, you know, by any, any measure, but it's in that realm. The one thing I will say is it, it had kind of a heavy clutch pull, which is a bit interesting because it's such a smooth and accessible motor with a great gearbox and then kind of a heavy clutch. And you're like, those, those things don't really jive, but okay, <laughs> you know, you do you Indian. Yeah, but I, I I was impressed with the short throw lever on the on the gear shift. Um, it just like you say, I mean, the gearbox was really smooth on it. It was really very good. Yeah, easy to, easy to operate. 
So what, what are the main differences between the Rogue and the Scout? Is it purely just down to aesthetics or, or are there actual uh, performance differences in there? Aesthetics, yes, absolutely. Um, and then the aesthetics do tie into the performance and riding experience as well. Okay. So the rider triangle has changed. Obviously, you have the mini ape handlebars that, in my opinion, transforms the rider triangle from the Scouts. I mean, it had low handlebars, kind of put you in this what I would consider to be a very stereotypical cruiser riding position, the clamshell riding position that you'll often hear referenced, which basically just means that you're hinged at the waist, your legs are out in front of you, and you're leaning forward. So if you think about doing that for a long period of time, you'll probably won't want to do that. <laughs> and so that's kind of how I, I describe it. But with the riser handlebars, the mini apes, um, it really unloads, you know, weight from your, your midriff and, and, and allows you to just have a much more natural riding position. You still have these forward controls that I wouldn't totally describe as true forward controls. They're sort of a happy medium between a mid control and a forward. Um, so they don't totally eliminate your legs from the equation. You can still brace for, you know, a heavy impact or something like that over a bump. But, um, you know, that's one of the main changes is the seating position. So over a traditional scout, I would argue that this seating position is much more, um, much more comfortable for my five foot, 10 inch frame. Now you also get a tasteful little quarter fairing and, you know, it may not look like it, but it offers a decent amount of wind protection. And when you're talking about cruisers, naked bikes, things that really just don't offer any sort of wind protection at all. Any bit of help is gonna go a long way. And Indian's done a really nice job with the aerodynamics in that capacity. You also have these bar end mirrors. That's a standard for the, the Scout Rogue. I noticed with a couple, a couple really tall colleagues, they kind of were just staring at their, their shoulders and the insides of their arms. But because I'm normal height, um, they actually work and I think they look awesome. You know, you don't have that typical little antennae bracket jutting out from the handlebar like you would. I think a bar end mirror is a, an aesthetic choice that, that really, really pays off here. Right. But, uh, you know, the other, the other hard change is the fact that we have a 19 inch wheel up front and that, that does some wonders for the handling on this thing. Really? Okay. Yeah, I mean, if you think, if you think to the the Scout, the Scout Bobber, those motorcycles handled quite well when they launched in fifteen. That's something that many of us observed, and something that that you observed as well. So yeah, big time. Yeah, you know the sixteen-inch wheel. Just when we're talking pure sort of um, chassis design and and characteristics that you're gonna experience with that, that fat profiled tire up front, that does sort of tame the handling uh, traits of any motorcycle. Now, they've gone to a 19 inch wheel, which does add a bit of rotating mass in the sense that it is a significantly larger wheel. And in most cases, adding size to the wheel will affect the handling negatively. However, we're using a much more narrow profile tire in conjunction with that. 
And it's one of those things where you're riding this bike and the chassis already handled quite well, especially when you're looking at it from a cruiser perspective. I would say that the Scout was a standout in that category. This takes it above that for sure. This thing is so fun to ride on the can in the canyons. And we were, we were up in uh, Ojai riding Highway 33. And you only have 29 degrees of uh, lean angle to play with, but you can fudge the numbers a little bit, start scraping those long foot pegs out of the way and probably get closer to like 30 or something. But, uh, you know, that's the thing. It's the thing is just really, really planted on the edge of the tire. It loves to tip in and, and just attack the corners. And it's not something that I think a lot of riders would initially, especially looking at it from maybe a sporting perspective that they would associate with this bike. Right. But you know, that's, that's sort of the, the genius of the scout. And one of, one of the things that we have to give Indian credit for is that their chassis design is really on point and they do a lot with, um, you know, numbers that might not translate to a lot of, a lot of, uh, sport or off-road riders, you know, we're still dealing with some fairly minimalistic stereotypical cruiser numbers in terms of suspension travel. Um, you know, you have, uh, 4.7 inches of fork travel that's totally totally par for the course and then right. to acquire that low seat height and the seat height on this thing is low i mean we're talking 25.6 inches i remember stepping over this bike to grab something on the other side of it which <laughs> i can't do on anything except a honda grom so just to give you an idea about how low this is but if you're a shorter rider that's why this motorcycle is appealing because you can get your feet on the deck, no problem. Sure. And so there you go. But in the rear, again, we have two inches of travel. And despite all that, the way this thing handles just tips in nice and gently, but it has, it, it has direction and, you know, there's an assertiveness into where it wants to go on the road and you can get it pointed just where you want to go. And it stays there. And they get the most out of that two inches of travel. Got to tell you, I mean, yes, it is sprung and damped a little bit heavier than the front. Um, and if you you hit a bump, you're going to feel it. That is that is the way of the yeah. cruiser for it is. many cruisers in, in the segment. Yeah, you know, a hard-edged hit, it's going to come through the saddle. And that's just the way it is. You know, I really wish we could get some additional suspension travel in future, future iterations of the Scout. But they'd be raising the saddle height significantly without some sort of huge chassis um, revision. And, uh, you know, this is a cruiser first and foremost. So despite the fact that it does have some handling chops, and I would say more than respectable handling chops, it's cruiser. You got to remember it's cruiser. Stop trying to drag everything like me. <laughs> and yeah. Just chill out. Except that's not going to happen because the saying is really fun to ride it, ride at, at, at a good clip. So right. it is a credit to, to Indian in that regard. You know, aesthetically, yeah, that's another thing that I think Indian has done quite well here. I think so. I think it's an absolute winner. I love the look of it. Yeah, I mean, with all of Indian's engines, I just love the way that they, they have the branding on the side of the engine cases. Everything's machined. It just looks really old school and the design elements that they, they bake into the engine 
really, really give a sense that it is a traditional American V twin with a cradle frame and stuff like that, but it's not, it uses a pretty modern chassis design in the sense that it has what I would call kind of a, a backbone frame. Um, and the engine is a stressed member, but it's just the, the detailing like on the, on the wheels, how everything's machined nice, well, nicely. And you have all these, these, these details into the frame where the shocks mount. It's, it's definitely something that's very, very cool. Um, and for me, that's, you know, if you're buying an American V twin, the thing has to look awesome first and foremost. So the only sort of downside is it has a really small LCD screen and there's no fuel gauge, which in 2022, I feel like we can, we can have fuel gauges. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's a little, a little bit of an omission. Yeah. But I mean, at the, end of, at the end of the day, this thing is extremely inexpensive. I mean, it's, you know, less than 12 grand. Yeah. MSRP on this. Um, They've got, got the pricing right. I'd say that's freaking awesome. Yeah. A lot of bike for the money. Yeah, it comes in well under the Harley Davidson Nightster, sure. which is up in that thirteen thousand range, a base price. I would say the only the only sort of miscue on the pricing for the the Indian Scout Rogue is that adding ABS is a significant chunk of change. If you go from just a straight base model, which comes in a black metallic, which looks awesome, you're talking eleven thousand four hundred ninety nine dollars. Cool lot of bike for the money right you go to the first abs model and that's twelve thousand three hundred ninety nine and we're not even getting imu supported abs so that's a chunk of change for some pretty rudimentary abs right i mean that's true yeah it, it's some some money but okay you know and that said since we're on the subject you know the brakes the brakes work quite well you you do have a single rotor setup and the feel, totally solid. Yeah, I think a dual rotor setup would give you more braking performance. There's no, no argument about that. But what you have here works for the application nicely. And, uh, you know, I would really encourage people if they're gonna buy this bike to get ABS because it's one of those things that's uh, better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And, you know, even, even we lofty, <laughs> experienced <laughs> motorcycle reviewers will stab the brakes uh going two miles an hour in a parking lot and drop right. a motorcycle uh, so yeah even with our superior skill set occasionally we are known to make yes. mistakes yeah <laughs> yes and I, I say or we say superior with a heavy quote mark air yes. quotation around it yes no uh, i think we've all done our fair share of dropping motorcycles and and uh, like you say, ABS is a useful thing on the street. It really is. Yeah. 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 So I mean, I don't know. An extra thousand dollars for ABS seems seems a little strong, but but I would say uh, definitely worth it. But but uh, but overall, it sounds like you really enjoyed the bike and really got a lot out of it. It yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the funny thing is, is that the Scout Rogue first riding that bike. I thought it was an excellent cruiser. You know, it, it was really enjoyable. The riding position and, you know, clamshell riding positions of that ilk can be a bit taxing if you're a taller rider. 
Um, you know, if you're a shorter inseam, shorter rider, you might not have that issue. So it's probably not going to be a big deal for you. However, taller guys and gals, yeah, it can, it can be a little bit much. Adding the handlebar, raising you up a bit, putting you in a more neutral riding stance, that just pays off a ton. Okay, that's right off the top. Then you have the, the addition of the 19-inch wheel. That increases handling abilities by a fair okay. margin. I, I would say it's a solid step forward. You know, it's not this night and day difference. Let's not exaggerate or anything. But it's a noticeable increase in handling performance and just its ability to flick through the canyons and have some fun. Now, that also translated at low speed, too. It makes it easier to ride when you're just simply riding around town and putting along to work or, you know, going to the store or restaurants or whatever. Um, obviously, with the whole rogue uh, aesthetic and thing like things like that, you know, it is a single position or a single seat or motorcycle. So, yeah, it's a solo seat. Okay, there you go. Um, but the changes that they've made collectively for me anyway, I think are superior than the scout. And that kind of happens sometimes. Sometimes it takes a couple of years or maybe an iteration or two to become better than its, its, uh, its originator, sure. we'll say. You know, it's, you always want the original to be the best and the shining star <laughs> in the hill. And sometimes just a couple little tweaks and you have something that you're like, hey, actually, this is pretty awesome. <laughs> And, and so it's made it a much more well-rounded cruiser, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a really nice evolution, I would say. I mean, I, I love the looks of it. I, I think the pricing is right. It seems like a great motorcycle. I, was, I loved the, the, the original way back when. Um, so very impressed with what they've done. It's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only big thing that we have to give it a knock for is the diminutive uh, suspension travel in the rear. And that's not much of a knock. If somebody really wanted to do something about it, they could, you know, swap out the shocks, put some aftermarket shocks on it. But uh, as it stands, it handles well, it handles handles great. You're just going to take a couple of hits to the rear if, if you're on a crappy road. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you will feel them. Now, it's, now it handles really well, so you can try to avoid the, the potholes, but, uh, you know. <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate the insights. Yeah, no worries. In this second segment, Neil Bailey brings us the third and final segment from Brian Slark, the man who helped bring Norton motorcycles to America. Having spent 27 years and counting at the Barber Museum in Birmingham, Alabama, Brian talks us through the final part of his career. That of course includes how the museum got started and where it's going. 2022 is the 100th anniversary of Schuberth helmets head protection technology made in Germany. The DOT version of the new C5 launches in June and it offers a revised fit with customizable inner pads for comfort, increased ventilation with a new chin air intake and rear exhaust spoiler, increased safety with a new EPS material and anti-roll-off system, and a locking mechanism to hold the chin bar open. It's also pre-wired for the new SC2 communication system offering mesh by Senna. Learn more about all the new features at shoeberth.com. The new Shoeberth C5, endless evolution. There's a place where the track meets the street, 
whether next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. Take a closer look at yamahamotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. So you had come now to Birmingham and you're working in the original museum with the team. So set the stage what it was like. This is 27 years ago. You've left the museum in St. Louis. Well, at that time, there was about close to 500 motorcycles in the museum on display. This was ones that had been collected before you yes, came along. Yeah, they were either purchased or restored. And um, uh, there were some nice, nice displays, but uh, we weren't open to the public, so only a, a few privileged people would be allowed in to look at the bikes. Um, so you were brought in really because of your expertise yes. in identifying what's original, yeah, what needs yeah. to be collected. I, I, I had a pretty good knowledge of, uh, of, 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 you know, all the motorcycles there, and I knew what they should be like. And uh, also, I I had a good handle on obtaining parts, special parts, unobtainable parts. I had a pretty good network around the world for sourcing. Which so this is a huge resource now for this fledgling museum that yeah, you could bring is, this to the table. In those days, we didn't have a computer. We did everything on the phone or with a fax. So we didn't have the luxury of, uh, you, you know, you got a passbook out, everything was paper. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, when you think now we had a... We had a machine shop with a... Lee Clark. Milling machine and a lathe and, and basic, really, boring ball. But, uh, you know, we, 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 did, we did everything to the best of our ability. So you must have been a very close-knit group. I mean, what, was about eight of you there with... Yeah, it's about eight of us. So it's a very small group. And you're only, uh, it's a big building, but the restoration shop is quite small. So... Every everybody just helped everybody else out. You know, whatever you were good at, specialized, you would you would do it. And uh, you know, um, at the end of the month, we restored quite a few motorcycles. It was a, it was almost like a little motorcycle factory. And uh, but this was Chuck Honeycutt, Joe Bruton, yourself, yeah, Jeff, Ray, Jeff Ray, Lee Clark, Lee Clark. And then we had a couple of guys in the in the paint shop, Bill Lee and Tracy Whitfield. They were doing paint of preparation. Uh, Robert Meredith was doing restoration. I would do some restorations and source parts and sort of do a lot of stuff. And and, and really, uh, it was almost like a production line. But at the same time, you would... Mr. Barber had gone vintage racing. So Chuck was racing, and who was the other racer at the time? Stephen Matthews. And you were doing the G50 matchless and the Hawk. We were, we were doing the G50s. Uh, and, of course, the, the motorcycles were immaculately turned out, and the riders were immaculate in their leathers. 
and we were like the guys in the white hat. But we went to the races. It was very professional. And what but those bikes, when you came, they were still a little bit in development. Team Obsolete was the sort of uh, class of the Team field. Team Obsolete was the was the uh, yeah they were our, our main opposition. But you know, um, you know we would develop the G fifty. Uh, we had the dyno, and we would we would <coughs> add lightness and uh, add power, and um, it was it was very successful, and it it got the barber name out. It what did a good the racing public? What did a good G fifty make on the dyno? Do you remember? What, the, horsepower? Yeah. Oh goodness. I'm digging the, now, in, right? In the mid or high fifties. So that's a healthy but amount we, of... We did a lot of work with special ignitions and squish heads. and We we were very, very fortunate. We could spend three or four days running them on dyno, different exhaust... We made different exhaust systems. Um, just, just did a lot. We were very fortunate. We had the time and the resources to to develop the bikes. And also, it was interesting because uh, we managed to get one of the Britons, and that was neat, and we got to look inside the... the This was before the barber that we know today, yes? Yeah, and then... uh, So uh, did you actually go to New Zealand? I'm sorry? Did you go to New Zealand on that trip? No, I didn't. I just started there, actually, and they... They they went to New Zealand, but uh, after we got to Britain, we got a, a Honda RC161, one of the factory four-cylinder 250s, and it needed rebuilding extensively, so that was another interesting facet to look inside. Some pretty exotic motorcycles where most people would have the opportunity to do that. And uh, we kept adding adding to the collection and uh, things were getting a little crowded. Well, I think the main thing that turned everything around is that uh, we learned that uh, the Guggenheim in New York wanted to do a motorcycle exhibit, which is pretty unheard of. To, you know, motorcycles in the Guggenheim. People thought Thomas Krenz was crazy, but as a director, he was a, a motorcycle enthusiast. Uh, Road to BMW. So anyway, uh, some phone calls took place and the curators wanted to come down to look and see what we had. Well, it turned out funny because both the curators, uh, Alton Gulfile and uh, Charlie Falco, were both customers of mine when I had my Norton shop. In fact, Charlie Falco went to college in Orange County, California, and he would hang around my shop as a as a, a young college kid, and now they are, here they are doing a, a curating this uh, exhibit. So anyway, um, uh, negotiations took place and they came down, they said, and they were just absolutely blown away with how many bikes we had and the selection of bikes. And they said, uh, boy, uh, you, you know, you could do the whole show. You, you know, you've got enough motorcycles here to do the whole thing. But anyway, we were the largest um, contributor to the show. I think we took 20 or uh, 21 motorcycles. And um, 
as as the uh, installation uh, negotiations took place, Jeff Ray and myself were asked if we would go to New York for a week or two and help on the installation. Well, when we got there, the uh, the guys that do installations of new exhibits are normally starving out of work artists, and they work on a uh, uh, Basis, they come in and they just work for a couple of weeks. Well, they were used to uh, holding men vases and paintings and not used to motorbikes. So, you know, they were standing around in white gloves. So Jeff and I just got hold of bikes and we actually installed 114 motorcycles. And uh, naturally, uh, now you know, that exhibit was the most attended of anything at the Guggenheim. It was a fantastic. Uh, Mr. Barber was very generous. He, he invited any of the staff and their family to go to the grand opening. Um, as I say, Jeff and I were there for two weeks and uh, got to see New York and Manhattan. It was a wonderful experience. And uh, uh, I can remember on the last day, it was so, so well attended. It was one out of the door and one in. And when the show closed, there were people still lined up around the building. It was absolutely magic. And uh, so being so such a success, they, they decided to move it to um, the Field Museum in Chicago. So once again, Jeff and I went off to Chicago and that was a little anticlimactic because it was just a big rectangular exhibit building where the Guggenheim with a spiral ramp, which after being to the Barbie Museum, it looks familiar. Um, that was a little anticlimactic, so we got that done. And then to our surprise, they said, oh, uh, Europe's very interested. The Guggenheim in Bilbao, Spain, wants the exhibit to go there. Can we have your motorcycles? So we said, well, yeah, you know, we'll do that. So every motorcycle had a custom crate made, a gorgeous crate. And uh, they said, oh, one thing, we want Jeff and yourself to go there to supervise the installation. So we went off to, off to Spain for two weeks. And uh, once again, we... Uh, supervise the installation this time, which is quite interesting to see how they work. And uh, that was a, a beautiful building and a, and a wonderful display. And of course, the enthusiasm with the people in Spain was like magic. And uh, once again, Mr. Barber gave the invitation to any of the staff to go over to see the exhibit at the grand opening. So that was quite a, quite a, a experience and then of course they came back to America and they they wanted to do the Las Vegas show but at that time we thought the motorcycles had been away for a long time and you know it, it's it's uh, it's hard to beat the Guggenheim even Las Vegas it's hard to outstage that so anyway we decided that we weren't going to go to Las Vegas and come back and then I guess uh Mr. Barber got this idea that we do we do need a little bigger place and a little little bigger track. But you had also at the same time been thinking 
or asking, can we have somewhere better to test the bikes we've been building? Yeah. Right. So yeah. these two things sort of coincide. Yeah, we and, and you know it, um, it it all sort of I don't know. It went off fantastic. You know, uh, the land was obtained and the building was was drawn up and uh, the the racetrack. Uh, we would go out to lunch times and look, and there'd be a fifty dump trucks making that big bowl, that big, big basin for the racetrack, and uh, it seemed to take a long time. But um, so it was eight hundred and fifty acres of wooded land when you started. Yeah, it was. It was just it had been stripped mined, and it was undulated, heavily wooded, and a lot of rocks, a lot of granite. So it. Uh, I took a little little bit of dynamite and uh, massage it to to uh, actually make make a racetrack. And actually, the racetrack reminds me a little bit of Brands Hatch in England because it's in a bowl and more more or less a bowl. And so the bowl was deliberately built to yeah, make deliberately to put the elevation in the track. Yeah, a lot of dirt was moved and. Uh, um, and then the building, I mean, the, the the building was just magnificent, you know, and after a humble little warehouse downtown, it was huge. And um, it just drew, uh, we we worked and I had six months to move in and get everything set up. How many With, bikes did you have at the time? Do you know approximately? How many bikes? When you moved in? When moved, uh, I think about, about eight hundred. Oh, you'd got quite a long. Oh way. yeah, and I I moved every one with the help of uh, a, another guy, a volunteer. We would do four loads a day, and we moved every motorcycle to the old museum. And uh, we had six weeks to open the museum before the museum opened because it was AMA, uh, the AMA National Races. Uh, Superbike race, and Mr. Barber wanted to open for that. So instead of six months, we had six weeks. So it was a thrash to get it open, and we had the grand opening. And what uh, year was that? Do you remember the? Oh my goodness, two thousand five, maybe. Must have been. I, right? think, I don't know. The years go by fast. Two thousand three, I think, because it's twentieth 20, anniversary okay. next year. So. But anyway, we we managed to open it up and. We looked at the place and uh, we thought, my goodness, how are we going to fill it? Well, I mean, so it how long? Cavernous. Just to back up a second, so from the the decision to make it, to clearing the forest, clearing the land, putting the racetrack, to opening the museum, was that one year, two years? How? What was that length of time? It must have been, it must have been a year or so in the in the. Yeah, and you were still restoring bikes at the we, original. We were place. still working in the old building. And, uh, we would go out there lunch times and uh, take a box lunch and sit up on the hill, and we would just look at this thing growing, growing between you know uh, race control building going up, museum building going up, the drainage, uh, a lake going in, um, landscaping. It's almost like Disney. It's just fantastic. It is hard to conceive. I mean, you look at it now. 850, 880 Well, we acres. added on the addition. Yeah. And that's filled. Yeah. You know. So initially, uh, when you came, you were wondering how you were going to fill it. 
Yes, yes. It, it was it was like cavernous and echoed and looked around. It looked like the airport parking structure, you know. <laughs> I said, what are we going to put in here? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, managed to fill it. We're still filling it. So that was um, in 2003, 20 years ago. So you put the initial collection of bikes. So then that, so your life then went into a different phase now because you well you sort of more went away from restoration and more into collection at that well, point we were, yeah one thing we were open to the public yeah so that created so a that was a big step and uh that was a big move for a lot of us because we had been exposed to a lot of people who covered in the museum people wanted information they wanted tours and they were hungry to for information so we had to switch from being a full restoration shop to a, uh, dare I say, entertainment uh, destination. And, uh, you know, various events. Uh, we had rallies, we'd host rallies. Um, we've got Indy cars. Um, AMA Superbike at the time was coming, track yeah, bays. Yeah, you know, just a lot of um, Porsche, coming in on a regular basis so so what was the decision at that point then with you and Jeff essentially you doing that thing Lee and Joe Bruton and Chuck were opened a restoration shop inside the museum yeah the, which is uh, still there today yeah the uh, you know we had a we had a full size machine shop and we had uh, different rooms for plating and uh, metal finishing. And but you you weren't so involved now with the restoration. No, I got more in the uh, Jeff got me more in the administration side of things, um, doing the display cards on every motorcycle, inventory, um, overseeing everything there. Um, it, it, yes, it, it evolved to where, you know, we have to have uh, museum staff and volunteers and docents and it grew. It, it, it just grew from a little skunk works to a world-class museum. So during, during these 20 years that you've been open, I mean, you've been to the literally to the Far, far corners of North America sourcing yeah. motorcycles. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's sometimes it's a chase is exciting or the research. I mean, you hear someone calls you, I've got this bike and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, uh, go look at it or get photographs and you do research on it and make sure that it's real, it's got some providence. Um, Jeff and I used to go to a lot of places. We go to uh, estate sales and auctions, and and just you know we would be able to sort of pick and choose some really really nice examples of motorcycles. So while you, while through this period you weren't hands on in the restoration, you've been very involved with the history of the bikes and the yeah. research and yeah. sourcing of parts. So you you still have been very involved in these restorations. Yeah, um, yeah, I've been involved in restorations, um, maybe sort of on an advisory 
I've, I've restored about 12 motorcycles in, in the museum, which uh, it took me a little, little bit of time with my other duties, but that was very satisfying to see them in there, that's something I did. Um, yeah, I mean, you get a, a boy, you know. You yeah, feel, yeah. Feel but pleased at but you're still involved in certain aspects yes, of... Yeah, I, I, I have a good... Uh, I'm very fortunate. I, I have a lot of good contacts in the industry, not only in the United States, but around the world. And, you know, sometimes you can ask someone that's got that elusive part and if you say, look, we need this to finish a museum restoration, it's not for resale, people ante up. And also we get a lot of donations where the guys don't want, they've had the motorcycle for years, it's time to give it up. They don't want it to be hacked around or chopped and they want it to go to the museum. And I just had some very nice uh, uh, transactions over the years. Good times. Yeah, just not just the bikes, the people, the, the story. people. Yeah. yeah, you know when you walk around the museum, uh, I look at bikes, and each one has a story. I know a lot of them who had it, where it came from, what the history of it is. Uh, you could write reams on each motorcycle if you had the room, because they they all have a story. And a lot of it is the characters that own them or what they did with them. We got bikes that set records, uh, long distance records, race records, uh, hill climb. Uh, one motorcycle we've got itself here. It was in the family since it was new in the, in the 30s and three generations raced that thing. You know, it's a, it, it's, it's a, these types of stories that make it's, these it's things. A story, it's the yeah. histories, yeah. The and providence. you have, I mean, uh, you have Surtees, five hundred. Yeah. Was that the one he won his championship on, or one of the one of them? Yeah, you know, most of these guys had a bike and a spare bike, a backup bike. But but the I unique mean, thing with that is you also have his Ferrari. That he won on four wheels. Was that the same one that he won his championship or one of his? One of them, but that is the only type 158 Ferrari original in existence. I, um, one of the most pleasurable things I think that out of many pleasurable things that I've experienced with you guys over the years was when John Surtees came and drove his Ferrari and rode his MV in the same day. And that was quite the day out. Yeah, that's, I mean... But this is some of the stuff that you've been able to make happen, that, you know, the unimaginable, that John Surtees would come and ride his 500 MV and drive his Ferrari in yes. one day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we went to Pebble Beach and we were very fortunate. We took an E95 AJS and we got first place at Pebble Beach, which is quite good. And then the next year we took uh, John Surtees' Ferrari, his MV and John, which was a heck of a combination. And we, we won Pebble Beach again. So we thought, well, we've, we're pushing our luck a little bit. We better back off. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been a hell of a, hell of a ride. Yeah, so give us a couple of Mr. Mr. Barber stories because he's just such a unique character. 
Mr. Barber stories. Yeah, you got to give us a give us some good juice here. You know, it's Mr. Barber is a complete gentleman. Yes, he's he's been extremely generous to his staff. Um, he keeps out of the limelight. Uh, he's immensely proud of what he's done. He's very proud of what his team, his staff have done. And um, it, it's, it's hard to explain, but every time that I just drive up the parkway and I look at the building and I think, oh my goodness, what a, look at, look at what we have here. You know, it's, it's, it's just incredible. Incredible. Hard to imagine when, like you said, I mean, not that, I mean, a few hundred motorcycles is not a humble beginning, but comparative to what you have today. Oh, I, I think, I always think that any motorcycle enthusiast could go in the museum and he could either look at something he's always wanted to look at, look at and examine or something that he, he rode at one time. Uh, there's always something that would perk his interest and uh, you know the main thing you could take all the photographs you want so like where else could you see like a brand new say a Nord Commando brand new no miles so if you're restoring or working on one that's a definitive model to look at you know it's it's uh, like new Honda like 1988 Honda Interceptor guys come in and photograph it they want to see the placement of the decals and everything and and it's a it's a snapshot in time really yeah many many snapshots yeah. how, how many bikes are in the collection at the moment exactly do you know uh at the moment close to 1800 and that's that includes bikes on the floor bikes in on the, the floor i think there's about a thousand on the floor Okay, and then the rest is sort of a waiting... Yeah, we, we have a storage area, which uh, we call that the, the job security room. Um, we've, got a lot of, we've got a lot of nice spikes in storage, but we try and rotate them around and uh, you know, keep everything interesting. But over the years, you've created some wonderful events as well. I mean, the, the Vintage Festival. I mean, yeah, how did that come uh, about? the Vintage Festival... Jeff and I kicked around the vintage, an idea. Armand used to, uh, the vintage racer group, Armand, would always have a weekend there, but it was a non-spectator event. So we thought, well, you know what, why not open this up and, uh, you know, uh, make it look like a, like a nice weekend where people could come in and maybe we'll have a little swap meet and, you know, uh, do something special. So we sort of banded this idea around and I said, yeah, let's, let's call it, uh, you know, the Barber Vintage Festival. So we sort of pitched it to, to people there and the promoters, Zoom, and uh, they said, well, that's a bit risky. So they said, we had a budget of $3,000 which is amazing. You wouldn't even empty the trash cans for that today. And uh, we started the Vintage Festival. What type of attendance do you have on the first one? Well, before that, Jeff and I went to every 
vintage event and every uh, AMCA uh, national meet handed out flyers hoping someone would come to Barber, come to Barber in Alabama to a, a, a motorcycle event. We handed flyers and cards and everything. And I think, I forget how many last year, but we were hoping like in the swap, oh, if we got 40 people, we'll be happy. And uh, it, it we got a lot. I, I forget how many people now. It's been 17 years ago. But uh, it, it, it went over pretty good. And um, the whole event has grown through referral. We never did heavy advertising, but one guy would come and he'll took five of his buddies and the next year five more would come. And it, it just grew and the swap we grew and uh, 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 the, the displays of wall. We got the wall of death, Rep Rotten to do the wall of death. And uh, um, Armour did the off-road events. We had a motocross track, vintage motocross track, across country. We did the trials, and it was a three-ring circus. And it 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 continues to grow, and it's now it's I think it's the premier event in the country as as far as the quality of the event. Um, it's for motorcycles. It's a motorcycle event. And uh, we even park the cars off-site and people can bus in. But the, the priority of it is a motorcycle event. Well, yeah, and there's shows inside, there's shows, r- racing. Everything, there's everything there, everything for... And for, just even the spectators parading around on their own bikes. Oh, yeah. I oh, mean, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, actually, the show's on the perimeter road because the whole perimeter road... Lying with motorcycles. a couple of miles, is lying wall-to-wall with bikes and um, very proud of the uh, uh, vintage festival what it's it's developed into well i mean what what are you what over sixty-five thousand people come we've through? had over a three-day weekend we've had seventy eighty thousand people it's it's a pilgrimage uh we get a lot of people uh, i've had people from europe say a couple from europe said they saved up for three years just to come to there, you know, just to come and see it. And, uh, yeah, Leeds, Alabama is full of motorcycles for a weekend in October. And, of course, it's always really nice weather. It's the we've had, uh, we've had some bad weather. We've had some tornadoes where we had to get everybody in the in the museum basement and, you know, had our rainy days and our hot days. And the only thing we can't control is the weather. But as far as that, we have a... A wonderful dinner Friday night museum by moonlight nice classy dinner um typical barber it's very very well organized and very polished and you know not to make a too overt ad for this coming vintage festival but you've got something special this year yes because you're actually going to be the grand marshal I, I am which is a unexpected and a great honour to to have that bestowed on me. I was very fortunate to be inducted in the Amy Hall of Fame, which is another something in my my career. I I had no never, idea that was coming out. Never ever dreamed about it. So uh, I guess you'd say I'm living the dream. 
Well, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, I don't know how it could be an awful lot better. Well, I'm just a guy that loves motorcycles. Well, I, yeah, and just a guy that has the most lovely wife that uh, <laughs> looks after you as well, right? Yeah, I'm Who still does doing it. Right, and you guys are long distance riders. I mean, Canada, Seattle, I mean, numerous. But you know, I, I, we're very fortunate in having a lot of wonderful friends through motorcycles. Uh, wonderful friends, which is, that's what life's all about. Yeah, and I mean... A uh, common interest. Plus through the time that you've been at the museum, and just before we get to you so you're going to be the Grand Marshal at this year's Vintage Festival, so you'll be, you will, you'll be, we'll be hearing from you at the Moonlight Dinner, and obviously you'll be having all your duties, so that... Uh, it, yeah. Do you feel that's like a bit of a pinnacle for the, the, the years that you've been here to, to be... I, um, I don't know. When I look back, I never, I never envisaged that I would ever reach this stage. Um, I just enjoyed riding bikes, racing bikes. Uh, it's been my life, and now to have these allocates is. Uh, it, it, it's almost a little overwhelming. I just like to be around my friends who talk motorcycles. Well, I mean, you think about the, the friends you've had across the years, Buddy Eakin, Steve yeah. McQueen, Gene Romero, yeah. Kurt Nielsen. Yeah, I mean, good, on and on and on. Good the... people. I've been very fortunate, really, in my career that I've had some really good mentors. I've had some good people that I've worked for, worked with. And um, I always listened and learned and uh, hope it rubbed off a little bit. Yeah, it's been an, it, uh, it's been an incredible innings to hear and it's going to be a really, really enjoyable vintage festival. So, well, Brian, we will let you uh, get going here and um, thank you for uh, sort of filling us in on this you know, third part of your journey um, in motorcycling that started really back in London. Um, on small motorcycles. Yeah. Not long after it's, the Second it's World been War. Been a hell of a trip. Yeah, I mean, and here we, you know, still to this day, you have an R twelve hundred in the garage with another Norton that you're restoring. Another Norton. Always have to have a Norton in the garage. Yeah. yeah. So you <clears throat> leave the museum and go home and start tinkering with your Norton. Well, Brian Slade, thank you so much for being with us. Um, guys, if you're listening and you haven't been to the Barbie Museum, you absolutely are. Thank you, Neil. My pleasure.